You're listening to the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm your host, Derek Duncan, architecture editor at Golf Digest, and my guest for episode 79 is designer Andrew Green. In the late 1970s, George Fazio, along with nephew Tom Fazio, one of the most preeminent design teams of the era, were hired to make alterations to Inverness Club in Toledo, Ohio, in preparation for the 1979 U.S. Open. What began as a simple prep job spun into a major overhaul of the original 1917 Donald Ross design that included the construction of three entirely new holes on previously undeveloped adjacent farmland, the removal of two par threes, and a par five that combined parts of several other holes. A new style of bunker and shaping was also introduced. The modern additions were jarring and poorly matched to the rest of the holes, and over the subsequent years, Art Hills, a native of Toledo, tried to unify the old and new elements. But like a foul spice introduced into the recipe, it proved impossible to get the foreign taste out, and ever since, Inverness has been serving a mostly tasty, yet not quite right, brand of fusion cuisine. Around the same time the Fazios were performing a similar type of quickfire on Donald Ross's East Course at Oak Hill in Rochester, New York, to get that layout ready for the 1980 PGA Championship. Here, as at Inverness, they attempted to solve congested routing problems by constructing several alternate holes and making major adjustments to the greens and fairways of others. Ross's architecture at each site had been largely wiped out by the time the Fazio showed up, and in their defense, the work at each club was guided by the unique demands of major championship play, modern design ideas, and spectator flow. Restoration and historical preservation was not a concept in the 1970s, and the alterations reflected the mindset of the day, in which the integrity of the original architecture and routing, that original piece of art, was little more than a nuisance if it was thought of at all. The founding designs at both Inverness and Oak Hill were strong enough to keep both courses highly ranked and relevant as tournament sites, but for nearly 50 years they carried on as hybridized designs that had little to do with the way Ross and his crew sculpted the holes into the ground. We live in a different time now, one in which the history and origins of a golf course are not just more knowable, but prized. It's fair to wonder what took so many historic clubs in the U.S. and Canada so long to rid the desire to be something they were not and to reconnect with their origins. But at least in the case of Inverness and Oak Hill, they've come out of the wilderness and not a moment too soon. That's due to the work of Andrew Green, who quickly over the last five years has become the most prominent and active renovation and restoration specialist in the game, not named Gil Hans. I say this because the statue of the course as Green is remodeled, including America's 100 Greatest Legends like Inverness, where he restored Ross's flat-bottomed, vertical-faced bunkers and revamped sections of the property where the Fazios inserted their holes, Oak Hill, where he reclaimed several holes that were abandoned or chopped up, including Ross's original 5th and 6th, while deepening bunkers and pulling them tighter to the expanded putting surface, and Congressional's Blue Course, where he completely stripped down and rebuilt the entire layout as a 1920s Devereux Emmett-inspired design that rolls broadly across a mostly treeless landscape of large hills and hollows and fearsome, ragged-edged bunkers. What's most impressive to date is how Green's work has coincided with these clubs' decisions to finally and comprehensively rectify the ills and dissonance of the designs they'd been living with for so long, particularly Oak Hill and Inverness, but also the once heavily cloistered Congressional, which had slowly been receding from relevance both in the rankings and in architectural respect. Why now and not 10 or 20 years ago? Green not only seemed to come out of nowhere to guide these clubs down paths they'd seemed so reluctant to travel, yet that so many observers had been encouraging them to go, 
He's done it with vision and a sense of grandeur that seems improbable for someone just starting out on their own. His conviction is such that I suspect that he presented these clubs with a prophecy of what their courses could be that was beyond anything they themselves could even imagine. Green not only led them down long neglected paths, he laid the bricks and charted the route. To many observers, Green seems to have burst onto the design scene. The reality is he spent almost 15 years working with the contractor McDonald and Sons, learning both the craft and the business. And one gets the sense he's just warming up. His work at Oak Hill will be on the world stage during the 2023 PGA Championship. And for those that don't know him yet, it's sure to be a coming out party. In 2022, he'll debut two more prominent renovations of Ross's original designs. Scioto Country Club, another perennial 100 greatest course in Columbus, Ohio, and Wanamwasset in Rhode Island, currently at 166 in our rankings. Green has also recently been working with, among other clients, the exclusive William Flynn-designed Indian Creek in Southeast Florida, and Eastlake in Atlanta, where Bobby Jones learned to play, and the course home to the year-end tour championship, another design that would greatly benefit from a reversal of direction. And he's been looking at some new course projects as well. We'll get deeper and more detailed into all of this during this fascinating talk. This is me and Andrew Green. I guess I've, I've got to ask you, what's it like to be Andrew Green right now? I mean, you, you, I know I know how busy you are. I know how busy you've been with some really incredible, high-profile projects, really neat projects you're working on. But what is what is it like? Yeah, I just feel tremendously blessed. Uh, just very blessed to have the opportunities. Um, you know, you. This is what I always wanted to do. Uh, junior in high school, I decided this was my path, and. Every person I met along the entire journey said how hard it would be. Yeah, and and they were not being mean. They were they were probably being accurate. They were looking out for you. Yes, uh, and it kind of seemed like the more somebody would tell me I, I could never do it, the more I wanted to try. Uh, maybe uh, that's just the way I am. You know, you as a young architect in this business, you're so hungry. You have so many ideas. You just want an opportunity. And when you're given that opportunity and you have success, it's it's kind of surreal. It's, you know, for so many years, the business was based on a pipeline of, you know, whether you, you, you know, your family was in the business or you're a really good player and that's how you got into this or, you know, but when you look at where we are now, where there's a number of, of very talented people that are in it for the passion of the craft, not the other stuff, it, it's exciting and uh, very, very fortunate to be where I am and have the opportunities and the projects uh, that I have on, ahead of me. That's an interesting. You bring up an interesting point about getting into the business, and it seems like right now there's most of the most of the future are guys who are sitting on machineries and and digging in the dirt and uh, getting their boots muddy, and that's where the idea is. That's where the heat is. That's probably where the the future of the design world is. Do you do you see another way into the field now 
whereas you mentioned before there was it was a there's a, a different paradigm before you know you you wore loafers to the office and you worked on a computer and or you were a player you know the, those kind of avenues really drove the profession for for decades you know maybe two generations and now it's it seems like it's swung i don't even you know people said to you warned you how difficult it was going to be I, I get the sense that 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 advice has changed now. You know, they would say you can make something happen if you're willing to go out and and live on site and and kind of be a vagabond a little bit. Sure, I think I think there's definitely something to that. Um, if you look at for me, golf is very much about each golf course has its own personality, and because each golf course has its own uniqueness it makes golf interesting and fun and you want to go play all the different places and you want to go play the unique spots in the world and i think architecture should be like that as well you know we we tend to always find ourselves in these little niches but i think it's great that that there's a breadth of of talent and of ideas and thought and so then that kind of brings me to the idea that coming to this business in a number of different ways is probably a good thing um, for me, I, I would never trade the time that I had learning the craft in the field, learning how to build, um, golf courses. It's hugely important. At the same time, I value the things I learned in architecture school, um, and in turf school, you know, the, the, the book knowledge that then translated to the field stuff that then kind of built everything to where I am today. And, you know, have, folks reach out to me probably a couple times a month about how do I get into this business? And um, often that is responded to with some sort of, you know, get out there and do it, work hard. Um, that, that certainly tends to open doors, go get dirty. Like you said, go live uh, at a, at a project, uh, go near someone just to get a sense of what it's all about to start with. And uh, you know, if you commit yourself to it, we're in a very uh, amazing place here in the United States. If you commit yourself to it and you pour your heart into it, I think you can be successful. How long did you work for McDonald and Sons before you were kind of hung out your own shingle? I spent 14 years with them and uh, Chip McDonald taught me a lot about the value of the lines you draw on a piece of paper. And no matter how great your concept is, how great your vision is, um, being able to correlate some level of design to communicate to your client and then to follow through on those promises and make sure you're uh, on budget and on time, those are important things. Uh, so that, that information was just uh, invaluable. So 14 years, what, what would you say was, was your break? What was the thing that, that tilted? in your favor, that first job or, or the thing where you said, you know, I, I can do this, I'm on my own and, and this is the way forward. But everybody needs that. Usually one thing to happen or somebody to believe in them or some job that, that uh, gives them some kind of notoriety. What was it for you? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure it was one exact moment. There was certainly, I was in a discussion with Oak Hill in and around that time. Um, they were interviewing different folks and there was a realization that I was probably a better candidate out on my own. Um, 
So there were maybe, you know, securing that job, certainly uh, Inverness was a hallmark moment. Um, obviously, you know, a big name club. On a smaller scale, uh, the Country Club of York, maybe, in York, Pennsylvania. A uh, small club, uh, amazing place, great people. Um, superintendent uh, that was there, he and I worked together at Bitterman in Delaware. Right. I'm not sure many of your listeners will know that that place, but um, we ended up working together at the Country Club of York and, and built a, a master plan and worked through a number of different things. And, and that seemed to pave a good path for me. It, it talked to me about the idea of having a good team, uh, communication through a membership, um, communicating a plan, and uh, moving forward with it. You know, we mentioned that all the talent, all your colleagues, you know, there's a lot of really talented, smart, well-traveled, well-researched, knowledgeable designers, you know, under the age of 50. And they've spent a lot of time on machinery. They've traveled. They've apprenticed with the best. But one thing, and sir, I'm just, I'm saying this very generally. One thing that, that they may not have that is essential, and you can speak to this, is actually having clients themselves and actually knowing how to put together a, a project, a budget, knowing how much things cost, knowing knowing where to get everything. And and I'm not saying that a lot of designers don't know that, but that you have to acquire that knowledge at some point for, for some way. You you did, I'm sure you, you had a seat at the table at McDonald and Sons and seeing how all of that was baked in. But that's one thing I wondered that if spending so much time in the field and just being true artisans on the, on the machinery and on, on the excavator, if if everybody's getting that fundamental knowledge that we almost sort of dismiss as being, you know, the office style, the CAD work, all that thing, you know, it's not romantic. It's, it's, it's a relic of the past. It's, it's the, you know, it's the art Hills model. It's the, it's the Jack Nicholas, you know, top down hierarchy model. But those, those associates who came out of those firms knew how to finance. They had knew how to budget. They knew what things cost. They knew how to put together a plan. So you need, you need both of it. And I just wonder if, you know, I would hope that everybody's getting a well-rounded education before they're going out and getting their own clients. Yeah. So I guess I don't, I don't know how much I've ever communicated this, but you know, my background, love the game of golf. I have a five-year landscape architecture degree at Virginia Tech. So in those five years, it was mandatory to see kind of the breadth of the field, including things like hydrology, uh, best management practices, erosion control, all that stuff. I also have a four-year turf degree where uh, I spent a bunch of time working golf course maintenance. So understanding what it takes to do everything from string trimming to spraying to the whole nine. And then in the 14 years I spent with McDonald and Sons, I was a design associate, but I was also a project manager. So I designed my own project projects, which meant I came up with a vision I drew it out. I put a budget to it. I uh, followed through through all of construction, managed the crew during all of that time, um, and saw it through. So in understanding all of those different elements now um, is a tremendous foundation. And up until tomorrow, I've been a one-man machine. Um, I'm bringing on, uh, a design coordinator tomorrow to help me. And, uh, you know, looks like I'm going to continue to build my team 
but it's, it's important. Yes, it's hugely important to understand all the moving parts and even the stuff that's not glamorous and fun uh, is still part of the deal. Well, that, that's another thing you're taking on now that, that people need, you know, now you, now you have a payroll. Now you have to think about all the things that come with having an employee sticking yeah, your neck but out it's, there. It's a necessary step. Absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's exciting. Uh, but, you know, some of the projects I'm working on are very complicated. They need, uh, you know, additional support. And uh, so that's important. Absolutely. You know, you have, you've had, you've been associated with some really remarkable projects and some really interesting projects that I think a, a lot of people would agree, you know, Oak Hill, Inverness, Congressional, uh, very famous, well-known historic golf courses. And a lot of people who follow architecture would, uh, would have said, those courses need work. You know, they are not, they are not reflective of the greatness of their original architecture. And yet what you did at those projects and others aren't, isn't, aren't necessarily restorations or would you term them restorations? And I wanted to kind of explore this idea between uh, a restoration or what used to be called a sympathetic restoration or renovation or versus a, a remodel like at Oak Hill, for instance, what was your thought process with that golf course versus you know, Inverness was a, a slightly different process. You know, where do you, where does where do those lines fall between you know a historic restoration versus kind of you coming up with a with a plan to do something a little bit different? Well, Derek, I, sometimes I prefer whoever's looking at the work to label it because the labels mean different things to different people. Um. I feel like at Oak Hill and Inverness, certainly we're trying to be respectful of the original architecture. Um, the Donald Ross roots of both of those places had been somewhat lost in that we are just trying to reconnect to those. And so certainly there were restoration efforts within that as far as green shapes and um, edges and some contours. And then there were the things that we added that were never part of the original design, but the game has changed and the utilization of the golf courses have changed. Meaning, you know, to host a major championship, you need a number of different things than you had in the 1920s, uh, a hundred years later. Um, with congressional, it was really to restore. It was impossible. Uh, the, the, the design was basically nine holes of the gold course, nine holes of the blue. And it was just never you know, it just wouldn't work. Um, I guess where I've kind of settled on this is there's some merit to original intent. And when you study the way golf courses were put on the ground, often they were, they were put that way for a reason. And when you're talking about a golden age architect, in my opinion, they had a better understanding of how to connect the golf course to the ground than maybe a more modern stance. And why do I say that? Well, because the golden age guys couldn't move a ton of dirt. So they were left to work with what they had and they found very creative ways to utilize that ground. So in reconnecting these historic places back to their roots, it's really about trying to understand the original intent and putting it back together the best we can, given all the different things that have changed in a hundred years. And what I feel like the results are the golf courses that feel like they fit because I'm not trying to do something that was so 
wildly different than the original intent. And so whether someone calls that a sympathetic restoration, which I personally like that term very much, or whatever else someone wants to call it, you know, that's fine by me. But what I love about a place like Inverness is you stand on the first tee and you journey through the property and you feel like you're in the 20s, which was part of the, the intent of the project was to make it feel authentic. There's particular courses that, that we mentioned, and we'd throw um, Sciota in that as well. These are historic properties that have hosted major tournaments, but they're, it's a unique bunch of courses, especially those four that something was done to them along the way to really take, to almost purposefully push them in a, in a different direction. Maybe not Sayota quite as much, but they weren't just aged properties. They weren't just overgrown with trees. Uh, it wasn't just, you know, years and years of, of deferred maintenance or a, a, a bunker remodel, but they were really kind of manipulated. So each each one had to, it, it needed a forceful recorrection if, if, if you were going to achieve what you wanted to do, which make it feel like it, it connects with the land. Did you go to these clubs when you were talking to them initially and they were talking to other people, I'm sure as well, were you presenting your idea or did the clubs already have an idea? Did they have a, a board that understood that they needed to do something very major to get their course back on track? Or did you present this option to them and they selected your fairly bold program? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think there's some differences among those. But I think at the heart of all of them, there was a, my job, I thought, was to educate the decision makers about what they once were and what they could be. And it's not just that we're taking uh, Sayota back to the 1926 U.S. Open course, but we're taking it back to reintroduce those elements which were lost that then create a golf experience that no one else has because the historic documents clearly show the foundation of the golf course was tremendously unique. The, the again, green shapes, uh, bunker locations and styling, uh, the mound being very unique to the club. And unfortunately, the club had gone through a period of time where the golf course had become maybe more, I don't know, boilerplate might not be the right word, but it had no, it's pretty it close. fitting into a, a Dick Wilson frame yeah. of mind. Yep. And let me, let me step back and say that I've worked on a number of Dick Wilson courses and certainly appreciate uh, the work that he did. But I just think it was a different age, a different time. And an interesting thing to not forget is that the pictures of Scioto before Dick Wilson worked on the course, the course really that Jack Nicklaus grew up on, it was a shell of itself from the 20s. It had gone through the Great Depression. It had gone through World War II. It had lived a good life, but a hard life. It was tired. It needed something to, to happen. I think just the realization is that the mindset in the 60s and post-war was new and different. And Modern. the combination of RTJ and Dick Wilson kind of going at it mm -hmm. versus respecting uh, the, the stuff of the past. 
And it's interesting to me when you go through different parts of the country, there's a different level of respect for that original, the original content. You know, you go to Boston, New England, Connecticut, um, New York, a number of those places where their history was never really altered. And then you go to places where maybe the environment, the course of time, um, just the weathering, then it was, we want to be new and different in the 60s. So original architecture was lost. Um, I don't know, just my perspective. No, I think that's that's absolutely spot on is what happened. I mean, starting in the late 1940s into the 50s, the, the first real wave of renovation that was undertaken by guys like Wilson and, and RTJ and, you know, guys all around the country were brought in. Jeffrey Cornish were brought in everywhere to modernize the course. That was it. The, these clubs looked at their golf course and they saw something that was old and looked outdated to them. And even if it was a original masterpiece by uh, somebody like Donald Ross or Tillinghast, they didn't have a lot of knowledge of, of Ross and Tillinghast. I mean, they, were, they didn't have an internet. They didn't have uh, a library of books that they could consult. You know, they were, they were just names from the past. And it was much more valuable to them and valuable to the, 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 the people that they knew to have a golf course that was updated, modernized, well-functioning. Um, and that's what, I think that's where their focus was. Now we have this, this perspective of history that we can apply to it, all these layers. And we realize in many cases, they were taking these really beautiful original pieces of architecture and bastardizing them, you know, and stripping them down. I have a lot of respect for original work of, of RTJ and Dick Wilson and, and the, the designers of that era, but they did, they did go through and, and Sayota is a great example like that. They've been playing the Dick Wilson golf course since 1963. I think that's when when he did yes, the renovation there, and it's that 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 flashy arabesque bunkering that kind of came to be the dominant style for all those decades. And it, it makes you wonder why. It, as even as I say that, you still have other cases where you say like these clubs. A lot of them really took a a wrong step in an attempt to do something positive to the golf course. And I think it has to do with major championships when courses start hosting major championships and chasing major championships, constantly feeling like they have to alter their course for this one event every 10 or 15 years, you can really go wrong. And we've seen that in some of the projects that you've been working on. Yeah. And and to let you behind the scenes on conversations in the boardrooms of these clubs today, I'd say every single one of them, the conversation is we, we want the best golf experience for our members first and you know we'll do what we need to do to host the major championships but we're still a, a club for our membership and our guests you know 300 and what 60 or 59 days a year um versus you know the major championships and i, I would also say that the governing bodies i work with of of let's say all women's golf and men's golf and all the different pieces that i'm tuned into there's a real awareness within those governing bodies that they don't want to impact or affect or negatively influence uh, the, 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 the golf courses on which they're, they're playing their events, which I think is great to hear. And, and there's great discussions among, I can't tell you how many different, you know, whether it's raising or lowering the T there's conversations of does that impact the everyday play? Uh, so that's good to hear. That is good to hear. And I wonder, I mean, it seems like that's an, 
of that would be a fairly recent change of perspective amongst the governing bodies, especially especially the USGA, especially when it comes to their their marquee tournaments, the Opens and the the Amateur, because for years and years and years they they told courses this is what we need from you this is what we expect you know and the courses would would follow them but it does seem like looking at your work and looking at Gil Hans's work you know the, the two of you have done more to quote unquote major championship courses recently just like Reese Jones did in the previous era and Tom Fazio a little bit as well but the, the things that that you know there's there's definitely uh, a resistance to doing anything to trick up the golf course for a major championship. You're just seeing the the golf course express its original architecture or its original designer's philosophy without too much concern, obvious concern about how it's going to hold up to guys who can fly the ball 340 yards off the tee and you know and spin you know hit a seven iron 195 right. yards. And it's interesting to see the reaction when I travel around and look at some of these courses that you know, people wondering, or just the chatter from the, the sides, wondering how these courses are going to hold up to a U.S. Open or a PGA Championship or a Ryder Cup. And um, it's kind of refreshing to hear that, you know, your attitude and maybe Gills is, A, it's probably not going to be that easy, and B, who cares? You know, that's not, a, your mission yeah, is, is for the membership and, and for the clubs and not for uh, some governing body. Yeah, and I, I think the brilliance, if you look at, every golden age architect that wrote anything extensively about the strategy and the soul of the game, almost, I'm thinking almost, if not every one of them wrote something about a, a great golf course can do both. It can test the very best players and it can be enjoyable for everybody else. And in my mind, the brilliance of that are in, you know, variety of whole locations. Can we get, tough, tucked hole locations that make a better player really think if they're trying to get close. But even that hard hole location has a place for an average player to get the ball onto the putting surface and try to make a putt. You know, it's having a variety of width and a variety of tee setups that allow the golf course to be played in a multiple number of ways. And uh, I think that is some brilliance of the past that still works today. Congressional is an interesting example. Um, that golf course is, it's, it seems to me like, I, I think that most, a lot of people, I shouldn't say, I won't speak for anybody else, but I think that member that, that they knew that their golf course was kind of slipping in, in the prestige factor. Perhaps um, they were led to believe that the a U.S. Open or a major tournament was not going to be in their future unless they, they did something. The The golf course just wasn't very, uh, exciting to play. It was uh, there was a lot of rep- repetition, not a lot of variety in in the the shot demands or the or the green shapes or the bunkering. So, and and yet when people would play there, they would know it's congressional and they would know it's the blue course and there's all the prestige and the history and the U.S. Opens involved in that. So that kind of led people to have this comfort with the golf course. Now you go in and basically build a new golf course on this same property, and you trade that tradition and that expectation of of excellence and and history with uh, you trade that in and what you get out of it is a golf course that's that's dynamic for the membership it's exciting to play it plays differently day to day 
Every hole is unique and different. It's exciting. They didn't have that before. And yet it feels like a new golf course. So it's, uh, and I, I've been trying to wrap my head around that, that trade-off. Um, ultimately, I think it's going to be good, but, but it's, it's going to have to be appreciated and, and earn, its, earn its wings all over again. And it's a pretty bold move for the club to go in and do that. Sure. Yeah. You know, I think there were a couple of messages, you know, for me, number one, the golf course was kind of a personal place for me. Uh, I'd had a relationship with it from the nineties. It was kind of my childhood major championship venue growing up in Virginia. Uh, it was a place, you know, people always aspired to go play and then raking bunkers there in, in 95 and the senior uh, open and then walk mowing fairways in 97, you know, having a close personal touch uh, to the place. And then I pair that with the idea of playing the golf course, not long after the 97 open, I wanted to quit the game. It was <laughs> so hard and miserable. It was, it just, you know, you were hitting long irons uphill all day and hoping to get on the fronts of the greens. And it was just a slog. It, it, there was nothing, I guess, nothing really inspired about it, you know, to make you want to try again. You're mm -hmm. just like, okay, I'm good. You, you beat me up. I'm good. Um, in my conversations with the club leading into the project, I talked to them about, you know, look, the golf course really should respect the quality of the club. And the quality of the club is outstanding. You know, the, the history and the, the presidents and the founding members and, you know, just the aura of congressional. And really to do that, in my mind, meant to create a golf experience where those different holes presented different problems and you explored the entire breadth of the game. And, and you had a feeling of, man, this is tough, but hey, I want to come back and try it. Let me try this a different way. And I could not agree with you more that it will take some time to build back its historic uh, prestige. But I think it offers such a refreshing look at the game compared to what was there that it, it's going to be embraced. And, and I'm interested to see, you know, I can't wait for the ladies to play it next year or this year now um, and, and see how that goes. But uh, I think in general, the response has been, people are having fun with it, even though it's tough. And for me, that's a huge win. Yeah, you bring up a good point about wanting to play it again, you know, the old version. And when you see, you know, the greens that are presented kind of in a very static way, it's a, those are, those were tournament greens. I mean, they were like, we can get them really fast, but there's, there wasn't a whole lot of mix up with pin placement. You didn't, you never came to a hole and you never said, uh, yo, I can. I wish I could come back tomorrow and play the, it, when the pin's over there. You just didn't get That's that. Right. Uh, it was just very kind of stock presentations. And now you get that. Like you go to the first screen when the pin's lower and you see the back elevated section. It's a completely different hole. I mean, it's such a, it's a high achievement in architecture when you can move up a, a hole location around a green and it changes the way the hole plays. It doesn't just ch change your where you're aiming. It changes like your imagination. You, it could change where you want to hit your drive. It could just be more exciting. You just want to pull that shot off. You get that all the way around congressional now. You know, you can move those pins all around those greens and come up with, a you know, 100 different golf courses. It's really uh, it's really a nice achievement. So I'm, I'm giving you a, a nice compliment. Uh, <laughs> I want to go no, play thanks. it and, well, you know, look, see different I, pins. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate it very much. But uh, I think what you just said is what golf means to me. Um, I, you know, growing up as a kid, I always wanted to go, um, go play and try something different. And even today, I don't get to play as much as I used to, but you'll see me try shots. I probably have no business trying, but uh, I love, love to do it. We talked about congressional before, and you said something that was really interesting to me. And I, I've, I've thought about this quite a bit is you went there and, and tried to recreate landforms that had been stripped down over the years. I had a conversation with Reese Jones once and he, he talked about, and, and in a, in a, in a positive way, he, he, to his mind, he was he was improving the golf course by shaving down slopes and, and enhancing the visibility and, and lowering things and kind of flattening things out so you could see the targets clearly. That's always been one of his primary objectives in his designs is to create visibility. He wants the, the player to stand on the tee and know where to go and what shot to hit. But to do that at Congressional, he, he said his father never had the budget to, to make cuts like that. And you get there and you realize, you know, so much of the, the character of this land has been cut away over the years. And you went and maybe tell us kind of how you went back and tried to remold some of those areas of the, of the golf course and, and create some of that, that interest in natural looking, those natural looking landforms that would have added maybe a little quirk to the golf course, but character as well. Yeah, we spent, I'd say a majority of our time working on the land getting the land to be interesting, unique, and representative of what it was once upon a time, that was a primary goal. And then it was, how does the golf course fit on the, the ground? To do that, we moved a lot of dirt. I think we moved upwards of 200,000 yards of dirt. And on a renovation, restoration, whatever, uh, a redo project, that's a lot of dirt, especially in um, a location like Congressional in the Mid-Atlantic. And it was all to find ways to get the ground to be interesting and allow the golf ball to be above and below your feet to allow for width, because I, I believe width is important, but I believe width when it has, uh, when the left side of the golf hole has a different slope than the right side or the angle into the green is significantly different. That's important. You know, when your fairway is 25 to 30 yards wide, the right and left side of the fairway don't mean much. But when they're 40, 50 yards wide and they're tilted, yeah. then all of a sudden it means a lot more. And so with the shapers and the, the guys moving the dirt, we talked about, and I, I sent them pictures of just landforms. And we looked at images, uh, got a great book from college that was just aerial pictures of landforms. And we flipped through that and talked and you know, how would water kind of erode this area and, and how would we create uniqueness that then the golf course fitting on that um, developed interesting golf shots. And uh, it was it was huge. Now, I will say that it was an opportunity to put high points at modern landing zones that the Golden Age guys would have put. They would have routed the golf course where maybe they utilized a high point as a landing zone at 220, 230, 240. Right. We, we had the opportunity to shift those out to, to 320, 340, whatever. Um, but, you know, I did take that advantage thinking about the modern game instead of where the modern player, longer player would hit over those landing zones that traditionally may have been in the 250 or less range and would have kicked on, used the downslope. You know, I really tried to get it where it was more of a traditional presentation that even the longer player would end up either on the upslope or at the crest 
Uh, so trying to use some of that topography that we were recreating uh, to our benefit. Just thinking through congressional, first of all, it's got some great runs of holes. I think the first three holes are just so exciting. What a way to get away from the clubhouse and uh, three completely you know unique looks. Number two is is <laughs> such a good hole, uh, oh, especially yeah, compared yeah. to the, what was there before. And uh, 14, 15, 16, 17, really, really great. Um, still not a huge fan of the 18th, but it's a, a RTJ classic though. It's, you know, it's got some, it's got so much recognition behind it, but thinking about the old greens, especially, and you mentioned this earlier, uh, and even, you know, you can see this at, at, at Scioto too, and, and, and many other courses that you've probably worked on, because you mentioned this a second ago, that era in, in architecture in the 60s and, and 50s and 60s, when, when that generation came on, and I think it was in, in response to the, the newer equipment, the post-war equipment, the balls, the clubs, the steel shafts, you know, everything was getting a little bit better. And probably with that new mindset of having professional golf be so prominent in people's lives, you know, the, the era of, of first Ben Hogan and, and, and Nelson and Sneed and going into Nicholas and Palmer, it influenced those architects. All these things influenced the architects to really protect the front of greens. You know, you see a lot of that bunker left, bunker right, and it just it's it's almost strange now to think about but average players club members public players are they're just trying to get to the front of the green with their shots they're you know you could hit two good shots and if you're on the front of the green you're happy you know but it made it so hard for the average player to get their ball onto the green when you have to you know when that little landing zone is pinched and and good players still just hit right over the top and you see some some front bunkers in in Ross's architecture and other architecture, but for the most part, those old old guys kind of got the paradigm right. They got the, it right where good players miss left and right, and and average players and beginners need that run up. And it's just another example of kind of how architecture can periodically sort of lose itself and lose its way and and forget what it's there for. Well, I, I've said if anybody's listening to this that has heard me present, um, especially if they're at a club where that uh, post-war architecture has been prevalent and that we're making an adjustment. I can line up the 10, 50, the 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 best players in the world. And on almost every par four, not a single one of them would ever consider bouncing the ball into a whole location. Nope. nope. But... <laughs> 75, 80, 90% of membership would absolutely love the opportunity to bounce a ball in. So why not provide that, that option? And uh, yeah, I think it was maybe, you're right, it was probably an overreaction to where the game was going or where they thought it was going. But uh, that repetitive cutting off the front right and front left, um, yeah, it gets kind of boring for sure. And there, there's a lot of, of golf that um, was presented in that manner. But I love, I love personally, I love working the ball on the ground. And I think that's so important um, and a huge part of, of what I'm doing. It's, it's, a, it's a conflict, though. I mean, it's such a neat part of design and playing golf if you have something on the ground in front of the green that makes you want to try to bounce it on or use a slope. But every lesson anybody takes, every piece of equipment they buy is to get the ball high high in the air and as far as you can so you have these these uh 
you know, the, the way people play golf is working against like this, this element of creativity that makes golf so exciting. And it's that extra dimension. And yet the, the industry does everything that they can do to, to rub that out of, of the playing experience. Yeah. The, the two ways I found to make it functional and kind of make you hit the shot, or at least consider that shot. The first is to work on exciting front hole locations that have some slope or interest around them that, that really the best way to get them close is to bounce it in or, or, you know, at least pop it in, you know, from a few feet off the green. The other is to tilt some of the slope away from the player and make you use your judgment to, to hit and release or bounce a ball in and release, you know, to a certain section of the green. I think both of those were law, a lost art, um, from the golden age that that certainly helps play to the idea that a ball running along the ground gives you some advantage i'd like to see a club that uh, or a golf course that says you know first of all the architecture's there everything's open there's a lot of interesting grand contours and they say you can play our course but you can only get four clubs you know you get a driver a, a four iron <laughs> you know a wedge and a putter and you got to get this go play the golf course with these clubs and then that would really uh, you know, force you to think different in different ways and how to get the ball around the golf course and how to use the ground and how to see what's happening, you know, not just on the green, but in front of the green. Absolutely. I'll tell you a golf course that uh, demands that shot that I love when people go play it. And I talked to them is Huntington Valley in Philadelphia, the way the course is presented, William Flynn design, there are a number of holes where you cannot land the ball on the green. Um, and it's, it's just a great way to experience the game. We've been talking about some of these projects you've had and and creating these these fairly significant alterations to historic courses. Do you feel like it's been to your benefit in in kind of getting on this run that you're on right now by going in and presenting a big vision versus uh, I know a lot of a lot of other people who interview for jobs, no matter what the the business is they kind of tailor their approach to what they think the club wants to hear, what the employer wants to hear. They're maybe not presenting a vision. They're presenting, you know, themselves as a, as a good person to work with or a competent person, but these, you know, Oak Hill, Inverness, congressional, big historic properties, big remodel jobs. Do you think that that being that bold has worked in your favor is, or is it something else? Is it, can you put your finger on what it is? It could be a lesson for other people, you know, don't go in and, sure. and shoot, shoot high, you know, aim high, take your shot. Yeah. Um, you know, I've presented ideas in a number of different ways. I remember, um, you know, sometimes I would save a crazy idea for the very end and say, Hey, listen, this is something that's going through my head. I think we ought to explore, but I really think the way I approach this is that I'm true to myself so whatever I see and whatever I think I'm most excited about is what I present. Mm -hmm. And either that translates and everybody in the room gets excited and this is what we can do, or maybe it doesn't. And um, so I, you know, my general goal is to do projects that, you know, I can't sleep at night because all I do is think about it and I want to get up and get after it. Um, and so that I, you know, I would never want to present something that I wasn't excited about or feel like I was selling myself with a vision that really wasn't what I thought was best. 
Uh, does that make sense there? Does it, um, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's not that I don't, I don't know if I'm shooting for the moon or not. Cause I'm just, you know, telling people what I think. Um, and I, I try to, let me back up for a second. I think great architecture is possible by people that are committed and confident in the direction. And you can have a cool idea, but if you can't explain it, if you can't justify it, then it's going to be very hard to make happen. Um, We need to be dedicated. Um, We need to have good direction and, that all plays into, you know, having a level of confidence in presenting uh, those ideas. I think people are attracted to somebody who is confident. You just, you just said it. They're attracted to originality, good art, whether it's golf course architecture or, or painting or, or a poem or piece of music has an, an element of originality behind it. And I, I think that when you probably go into a, a board room and you're presenting whatever it is, people sense that. People sense that you have a vision, that, that your ideas are original, and that there's great conviction behind it. And I know every designer who goes and, and presents before a board feels that they, they have that, but but you've been doing something that is is working. And I was wondering if, you know, what made me ask that question is because I think part of it has to do with in your excitement and, and your belief in what you want to do, what makes, what makes you passionate about it? Is it something big? Is it, it's something substantial. It's, it's going maybe beyond what even the board members in the club thought they wanted to be involved with. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably right. Um, it's, you know, when I can, I can see, when I'm out looking at a property, you know, things present themselves. I I see, you know, something happening, you know, I feel like my job is to present a vision of how great I think a club can be. And whether that's something like the par three 10th hole at congressional, that was a pretty significant change to, you know, at Oak Hill, how do we reconfigure what Ross had envisioned in the space that we have available? Um, it's, it's, you know, seeing where things are missing and how to reconnect or to introduce the things that are missing to make the golf experience better. I guess that's, you know, kind of the way I, I work through it. But then... You know, there's something about seeing seeing the finished product when trying to investigate what something can be. You know, that gets me excited. Uh, the The idea of whether it's connecting a piece of history or seeing an opportunity and being able to visualize it and then communicate it to the group. You know, that's certainly been been powerful when you met with Inverness was, was it always your intention or your idea to build the new holes and redevelop that? that, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm sure that the club knew that that was a weakness, but it took them a long time to correct it. Was that part of your, what were your discussions like with the club as far as 
um, fixing this, obviously this, this part of the course that stuck out like a sore thumb, in addition to doing all the other, you know, sort of, uh, restorative Ross bunkering and all of the other things that, that make that such a, a great remodel project. Yeah, I guess maybe this speaks to the question of, you know, how boldly did I present, <laughs> but, right. um, you know, I was brought in to look at the bunkers. It was a bunker project, but I thought that it was of great value to show the group what I saw in the potential of the extra property they had and, and how we could reformulate that and, and find these lost holes that again, speak to the original intent of the golf course. And I think helps make the golf course feel more authentic and original, even if, if they aren't in the original locations. Um, but I, I've, I've spoken about it before. The amazing thing right. to me was walking off the back of the second green and starting to shoot yardages and starting to see where those holes could fit. And they, they worked, you know, it wasn't that I was having to do something elaborate or, um, you know, off the charts. It was just, Hey, it was there and, and showing them what it could be. I'll be lying to myself if I didn't say when I, popped up the slide of, you know, here's what I think you ought to do and put these three holes back in a cornfield. Uh, I wasn't a little nervous of, yeah. you know, they're going to throw me out of the room. Um, but again, I think explaining the opportunity, explaining how it would work and uh, what it would look like helped. I don't know the composition of the boards that, that you present to every club is different, but I'm wondering if you sense you know, over the last five, 10 years that there's a, uh, the people that you're seeing on these greens committees and, and on these boards are, they're also changing. Um, we're seeing a change over right now in golf course architecture and architects and designers like yourself becoming prominent. And I think that we're seeing a, a new generation of board member. They're a little younger. Maybe there's some fairly affluent. These guys are kind of like maybe well, pretty well to do successful in their career, but still young enough. Do you sense that that, do you sense that, are you seeing that at clubs? And do you think that has, if so, do you think that is changing the way that, that private clubs in particular are handling their, their projects and their renovations? It's an interesting question. Um, certainly seems to have the, the committees in the groups certainly seem to have a a younger feel to them. I would say, and I guess I wasn't working previously, so I don't know. I guess I just have to take uh, history's stance on it, that it seemed from post-war into the 2000s, there was a lot of personal agendas that were met through these committees of, um, you know, tree planting and bunker placement, and we're going to do this because this suits my game kind of thing. I see most clubs and committees now feeling that they're stewards of their club and that they want to make sure they're doing what's right for them now and them being everyone now and moving to the future and that they're working on this kind of legacy. You know, at Congressional, it was all about building the legacy, pushing the golf course uh, to the future. And so, you know, seeing people that are way committed to what's best for our club and our golf course versus what's best for me. I think that's certainly been a change and the diversity on the committees is, is interesting and it provides great 
I mean, for me, it's invaluable because when you have a young member with a perspective of the, a younger golfer and you have, you know, someone that's been around for decades and they're sitting on the same committee and the, the interactions are powerful and meaningful. And um, I think trying to bridge that gap is a big thing of what I'm, I'm trying to do is make, make everybody understand and, and work together. It's interesting to hear you say that, you know, if, if this, this new generation of, of board member is, is interested in, in preservation and, and the future. And I, I wouldn't disagree with that. We're in this age in design and, and architecture, those of us who follow it, where we realize that's, that's what this, these last 20, 25 years have been about is about reconnecting to the past and, and taking a big picture and honoring things that existed and, and looking at golf in a, in a way that it hadn't been looked at in a long time. And yet there's always the motiv- motivation. Well, I'll, I'll back up and say, you know, part of, part of doing that is, is there's such a, a greater knowledge of, of history. Now there's so many more resources that we have at our disposal to learn about what previously existed. We, we have biographies, we have aerial photography, we have, you know, we've unearthed plans and newspaper accounts and everything. So we have this, this database that didn't exist before, you know, 1990, basically. So we have all this and, and these, I think these young board members are really into that, that kind of thing. A lot of them are, but I just wonder if there's an impulse that people have, maybe as they get older, that they want to take on a project, they want to do something big. And I think that, I think we're seeing that a lot. And right now the projects are being really well done. Andrew Green is, is doing these things, these projects and, and, and Gil is and other people are, and, and it's restorative and it's, it's, the foundation is based on on f- great principles of architecture and really interesting things and great minds. But as we kind of progress through this and there's more and more turnover, I just wonder if it's just human nature to want to start to put your thumb on the scale and and do something that's going to leave your legacy as a board member. And instead of being guided by great principles, if we'll kind of leak back into that 1970s and 80s and 90s mentality where we're going to put a fountain in the in the pond or we're going to build you know an arbor arboretum over here and name it after my wife and I just and I know you can't answer that but I'm, I'm curious if you see any of that leaking in around the edges uh, is, is it something you have to potentially deal with yeah I, you know, who knows right for sure <laughs> right but my sense of it is that to be a committee member and to finish a, a project and it be embraced and enjoyed for it, for its completeness and its level of quality. I think there's a power to that versus the individual piece. So I'm hoping that that's the case, but then I'd also say that something that crosses my mind often and it's, it's been written about, and people have questioned, you know, is this a fad? Is the restoration effort, you know, just a period of time? Sure, it's a good we, question. When we look at architecture, right, it, it goes in waves. Uh-huh. And, um, I would say that I hope that people understand that while, let's say, I'm restoring this or that or Donald Ross or William Flynn or whatever, that the real power is in the quality of what those folks stood for, not so much what is on the ground, but the idea of golf having lots of different ways to play and be successful. And so many different styles of play 
on a well-designed course can be successful so that, you know, um, you know, someone that can't spin the ball, uh, can't hit it more than 150 yards can still go play the game and enjoy it. And the, the guy that bombs at 350, you know, can play the same golf course and have a, a different, but still a good experience. I think those golden age guys understood that better than the modern architects did. And so therefore I'm hoping that at least the restorative efforts that we're taking on based in, like you said, those architectural principles are more long lasting so that even if it changes and people blow this up or that up in the future, that at least they're keeping their mind and their eye on, on the idea that golf is supposed to, you're supposed to be challenged and play a lot of different shots. And I think uh, the golden age guys were just great at that. Yeah, it does seem to be. There's so much interpretation in in that as well as is, is is you know what style of golf and what how does this golf course set up? Um, you can think of definitely think of examples where the the architecture is not hospitable to um, you know a high handicapped player who doesn't hit the ball high high and, and far. Um, it, it is cyclical though. I, I do wonder if we'll get to the point and maybe if if you know. As especially as more and more people are getting into it, if if they if the equipment continues to progress, if the architecture will once again start to relapse into uh, a mode where it, it is kind of favoring one particular style of, of play, because um, it's been there it's been there before and it was there for a reason and it was very popular. You know, it's one thing that what you do is is so interesting on many levels, and one of those levels is you. Uh, are kind of going in right now and, and Gil too is is really erasing that style of golf from many clubs you know Reese Jones in particular uh, has worked at a lot of the clubs that are, are just everywhere you go his work is getting eradicated and again like I said earlier I think that a lot of people would say well you know that had its time and its place but for a while it was a, it was very popular i mean i think the club members at those clubs really enjoyed it and embraced that and it must be is, is it, it must be a unique position for you to be in to be able to have the opportunity on one hand you I, I know you don't you know think anything ill will of of a designer who who worked on a golf course before you but you're being asked to kind of create a new a new vision that mirrors the the zeitgeist of the moment about how we play golf, but in the process of that, you're, you're, you know, scraping away this whole nother era of design. Um, and hopefully you don't dwell on that too much and you just, you no, know, thinking no. about, you know, what you're going well, to do. Yeah. I think the realization is that, you know, um, I'm here for a short time and you know, the next guy <laughs> scrape my stuff, uh, probably and that that's fine. I get it. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm trying to build, long-lasting things. Um, I just, there, yeah, there, I would invite anyone that's interested in architecture. If you haven't read um, anything written by, I'd say Dr. McKenzie and George Thomas would be two of the places I'd start. I'd go read what they wrote about golf architecture. And I think you're going to catch yourself many times understanding no matter how long you've played the game, you're going to understand what they're talking about a hundred years ago is relevant today, not because of the restoration piece, but just what they thought about the game. 
And I struggled to see where some mass-produced golf, no particular architect, but mass-produced golf post-war lost sight of a lot of what those two gentlemen wrote about, along with a number of other folks, you know, uh, Colt and Simpson and, you know, tons of other people. But I just think there's a difference in golf created by that thoughtful aspect versus the more mass-produced post-war efforts. Um, it's just different. You know, that's, that's a good point. When you read those texts from the 1920s, you know, you could throw in um, Harry Colt. You could throw in the architectural side of golf, Tom Simpson. Um, there's such a an expression of joy and they're not talking about, you know, building the golf course. They're talking about playing the golf course. Like what, and you've, you've referenced this in this discussion is, is how to approach the game of golf, how, how, what, where the joy comes from. And it just comes across in their writing, this, this um, embrace of the ground and where the ball goes and, and having the course be a, a puzzle or a mystery. And we don't have a lot of writing from the 1970s and 80s and 90s from designers. So their defense is just what they built. Um, but I would be curious to know if they could express the same type of joy that you get when you read, you know, those, that generation was, they were great writers too. I mean, they're really concise and, and colorful writers that could really express a thought. But but to, just to go back on on the previous thought, you know, you're right. It is cyclical. someday, some your work will somebody will come in and renovate it. Reese Jones, he he wiped out a lot of architecture himself. He understands that it's it's part of the process. It's some it's another era and another time. Speaking of that, one of the projects that you have coming up is East Lake, and I'm excited about that because I've always considered that I've considered that a Reese Jones golf course. Um, and I don't know, you know, it's got a long mixed history. It's, it's, there's, it's, there's not really a, a version of the golf course maybe to really put it back to. Maybe there is in your mind. But what are your plans for, for Eastlake? I, I can't help but think that there's, there's great potential to make that such a more interesting golf course if you're allowed to, to make it such. Oh, well, let me first say that it's an amazing place with an amazing past and I think a, a tremendous future. Um, Mr. Cousins, I uh, had the great uh, fortune of, of spending a little time with him and his deep passion, not only for Eastlake, um, but Atlanta and uh, the whole staff there, um, are, you know, committed to making sure that Eastlake is um, a tremendous, has a tremendous future. And then when you look at the foundation, um, spent some time in the last week looking at George Adair and his influence uh, along with Ross and, uh, all the different moving pieces, everything basically leading up to George Cobb, his version of the golf course, and you know, trying to unpack it and learn, okay, what was where and how does this make sense? And when you look at, okay, this is the place where not only did Bobby Jones learn the game, uh, but Alexa Serling, you know, an amazing uh, uh, female golfer, that there was something about it that had to have resonated, not only probably the golf course, but certainly the, the, uh, what Stuart Maiden and, and his teachings trying to unpack how to make the golf course respect that early air of, of the place is a challenge. Uh, the golf course that I have the most documentation of from that early pre Cobb piece 
there were winter and summer greens. Yep. So each hole had, you know, yeah. some of them were two completely different greens yes. and some were side by That's side. That's very common uh, down here in the South. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, trying to understand, okay, how do we pull um, some design intent? And then also how do we develop a design language that respects that? Those are things I'm working through right this minute, uh, actually earlier today. And so I'm not sure yet where the journey will take us, but certainly respecting as much of that um, kind of original intent as possible. One of the things that I think is really interesting, the second hole, um, par three, had a very interesting setup of front and back winter and summer greens. There's something about that that's very intriguing to me of how, how do I... Usually they're side by side. Yes. Left and right. right? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, that's that's very interesting. And then there's some holes on the, uh, you know, so the nines flipped, right? So I'm never sure which configuration I'm supposed to speak to it in. Well, I'm going to go with the modern stance. So the back nine now, which okay. was the front nine I originally. still think of it the other way. Yeah. Um, there's some interesting things to unpack there especially along the high ground. But I, I think where we're going to end up, uh, we're going to end up with greens that are of interesting shapes, just because, again, I think that fits in golden age and the original intent of the golf course. And we're going to try to test the player in every aspect. Um, you know, some more short grass, hopefully. Uh, some more variety of angles of play. Um try to utilize the elevation a little better. So yeah, those are the things I'm investigating, but it, it's pretty early. Yeah. Are there any other, I mean, that, that is unique because unlike a club like Oak Hill that probably would like to, well, they're hosting a major next year or a club like Inverness who probably wants, it's probably in their interest to uh, see if what see what kind of uh, major championship or big event they can draw. East Lake every year they have the tour championship. I don't think it's going anywhere unless I unless I'm uninformed. But that does create a set of parameters that's unique. It's a it is a PGA, it's their marquee end of the year golf course. So you have to be thinking about that in a way you probably don't have to at some of the other most of the other work that that you do. Are there any other limitations to what you'll potentially be able to do there other than keep that in mind? that the, the big boys are going to be playing there? No, no. At this point, I don't see anything. It, there's only the realization that on a property like this, it has to be functional. So you have to provide avenues for uh, tournament support staff to move through the space during play. So having car paths crossing things, you know, you have to think through, okay, how's, how is the catering company going to get from here to there? So it adds a layer, but it doesn't detract from the idea that this is a place we want the members to enjoy the same as any of these other clubs, you know, every other week, but the week of the tournament, we want to make sure it's a really good test and a, and a good experience for them. It's just really layering in the other things that people don't even think about when you host an event that, that should be accounted for, or at least considered. And some of that can be temporary, uh, but uh, it's part of the equation. As you said, it's a, it's a such a historic piece of ground, uh, and the the atmosphere of East Lake is great. The, in my opinion, the architecture hasn't been great as of late. So a, a great opportunity. I hope they let you 
have a have you know i hope they let you do do what you want to do frankly yeah every sign points to that Mm -hmm. so we're looking forward to it i'll ask you about one more project i know you're involved with indian creek in florida a really neat cool uh south florida historic course what's the what's the uh, on the docket there what are they looking to do well let me first say that it's and a stunning engineering accomplishment. It was created from basically dredging Biscayne Bay in the late 20s and early 30s. I found all the information about, like you said, newspaper articles now, found all the information about how it was constructed and the seawalls and all of that. Uh, pretty stunning. And then let me say that for William Flynn to take basically a blank canvas with no topo mm-hmm. and create the golf course that he did, it is one heck of a testament to his design abilities and uh, to that legacy of that club. So it's important that we protect that. The reality is the golf course is tired. It needs to be updated. Uh, Golf courses in South Florida, whether East coast, West coast, you know, they're growing constantly, um, constantly weathered the amount of play, everything else. So the components wear out faster. So the project's going to involve um, all new greens and all new bunkering. Uh, all of that is internal. And then placement and um, adjustments are pretty modest. Um, trying to really respect the golf course had not changed a tremendous amount right. uh, from Flintstone. A huge component will be addressing uh, the impact of potential future rising tides and the drainage throughout. The original drainage system was really just a series of ditches. And I'm not sure, have you been down there, Derek? Have you been on property? I haven't been on property, no. Okay. So there were probably maybe four or five primary channels or ditches that water would run to and then kind of sit and move out. Um, We're installing a, a completely new drainage system. And in part of that, being respectful for the future and for the environment and understanding we're in the heart of Biscayne Bay, literally. Um, we are installing two ponds that have to basically uh, help contain and treat the water before it's released. And that was a big deal. How do you put water and ponds on a Flynn golf course that never had them? Um, and we work together with the membership to locate them in ways that are aesthetically pleasing. They add to vistas across the property, but they aren't going to impact the design of the holes. So it's not like we put a pond up next to a green or something. They're, <laughs> They're kind of off in in the middle between golf holes. Everybody exhales. Uh, Yeah, right. There you go. And then I think one of the most interesting things we're doing from an architectural perspective, other than kind of the standard push the greens back out, rework the bunkers, some of that stuff and the drainage, is the fourth hole. Um, The fourth hole on the original Flynn plan played along the water. And at some point in its early history, the hole shifted away from the edge of the water and uh, if you look at an aerial, it's kind of in the northeast corner of of the property. And so now you play that golf hole and you don't even really realize the, the grandeur of the, the Biscayne Bay. Mm-hmm. We're going to put that hole back more to the way Flynn intended it and the way he had a drawing and a grading plan with the golf hole along the water. So that hole will shift a little to the right and the green will be kind of mirror flipped to accept the strategy of that realignment. It's really exciting. Uh, it's huge. And I think it's going to add to the grandeur of the club and 
the, the, the real incredible place there is you come off the 11th green, you're on kind of the high point that Flynn created and you have this amazing par three 12th and then a great par four 13th. This change on the fourth hole is really going to add that element in uh, on the front side. Yeah. I, like I said, I've never been there, but it's, it's a, it's an old historic, very private exclusive place, kind of this magical little enclave that's, you know, you'd never know it was there. I don't think unless you were looking at it, flying over it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a great place. It's uh, the picture on the, of the 12th I actually put on Twitter, I guess a couple of days ago. Um, that picture of, of Flynn's original 12th has been an inspiration to me for 20 years. So it's a huge honor to be a part of it. I'm sure that was part of, part of your sales pitch when you went there. No, it's just, no, it's just, that's <laughs> the truth. Um, any new design work? Do you get looks or interest in designing new courses? Yeah, I have a few things um, that are in the works. Uh, unfortunately, not really anything I can share at the moment, but uh, a couple very exciting projects um, that involve you know, more of, of that kind of uh, design uh, strategy and ability. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, I just got a lot of fun, fun things happening. And it's a dream. Um, and, you know, I work at the moment, I've been working seven days a week and um, I just look forward to just building cool stuff and working with some great people and, and having a lot of fun doing it. It's, it's a blessing to do what I do. Um, it's a dream come true and I'm trying to enjoy it. That's a good way to round it out. That was the first thing I asked you tonight was what's it like to be Andrew green right now? So it, it must be pretty good. I'll close out. I ask everybody this. I don't know if you've listened to the podcast before, but um, what, what is the best modern golf course that you've seen or played What, what is modern age, Derek? Yeah, you can go back a few decades. I, t- I tell you, Seven, one seventies or newer. We'll, we'll okay. give, you, give you some latitude. <laughs> yeah, um, I tell you one that kind of had my heart, and it's kind of in a weird sense, and it was probably before my, um, before my uh, architectural sense had been real seasoned. But I, I was always kind of a sucker for Harbor Town, uh, the earlier version. Um, I don't know why. Uh, it's certainly like hitting to Honda Civics. You know, the greens are tiny. Um, but there's something to that. I guess it was charming. Maybe it's it's because it was a place, you know, I, I, I cherish playing as a younger person. Um, and then, um, yeah, I, I love the old guys. <laughs> It's evident, I believe, that Andrew Green likes the old guys. I know there's a sense in the design sphere that wonders how Green has been able to attract such a high level of client and budget, including numerous major championship venues, while working for so many years under the radar for a regional construction company. How did he do it, and do it so quickly on his own? He wasn't a shaper for Tom Doak or Bill Coor, and he didn't create buzz through a prominent social media account. But when you talk to him, his conviction and earnestness come across clearly. And I think that's as attractive as any other attribute a person who you want to be around can have. As we were talking, a number of traits came to mind that Andrew conveys. And I think they're things that all people are attracted to. And if you have them, they'll want to work with you and place their trust in you. Those things are confidence, capability, control, and character. Almost all the top designers carry these things with them on the job and in interactions with clients. You feel it. 
They're especially important when dealing with boards and groups of people at clubs, as Andrew does regularly. And after spending time with him, it isn't a wonder why he's working where he is. He seems to project these qualities along with an ambitious vision for each course. There are a lot of paths to go down after that talk, but one thing I wanted to press a little, and Andrew couldn't or wouldn't really go there, is the changing nature of the people who sit on boards at some of these clubs. I've had several conversations with people who work with prominent clubs in renovation and restoration, and they noticed what I asked Andrew about, how the typical board or committee member at these places is trending a little younger. Maybe they're 35 to 40 years old. Maybe they work in finance or law or medicine. They've arrived to some extent, and now they're sitting in positions of relative power at premium clubs. On the one hand, I'm told many of them have more knowledge of design and history than their fathers did. They're interested in it, and that, that's great. But on the other hand, a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Just as the green chair also being a club champion is usually a poor mix for maintaining the architectural integrity of an older design, the proliferation of architectural knowledge can sometimes induce certain types of people to think they know better than the consulting designer, or that it gives them license to interject their own ideas about what's best for the course and what should be included in a remodel. That's where project creep begins, the urge to push the renovation or restoration to start doing more, not less. Maybe Andrew hasn't come across this, and hopefully it's not something that happens everywhere or even very often, but I've heard it from enough different people that I wonder. We've seen project creep happen in past generations, and maybe it's just human nature and that it happens in every generation. Just now, with a different past-oriented focus, people want to leave their mark. The historical intentions may be good, but there's something to be said for restraint. I enjoyed that conversation, and I hope you did too. Please remember to share word of the podcast with your fellow golfers and leave a star rating and review of the show wherever you download your podcasts. I don't run advertising, so good reviews and word of mouth promotion is the best way you can help out. Go to feedtheball.com to access old episodes of the show. I think it's cool to explore those older discussions. And if you don't follow me yet on social, you can at feedtheball on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you all very much for listening. Thanks to the Sundogs for the opening segue music. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios.